You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Church in Huntsville, Ontario. Harvest Church is a community that exists to love God, love people, and make disciples of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. For more information about our church, visit us online at myharvestchurch.ca. Why don't you grab your Bibles and turn to the book of John. It's where we're going to be this morning, the book of John, John chapter 2. As you're turning there, um, when, when we first launched our church, we spent a lot of time thinking about how do you convey the message of who we're going to be as a church. And so you think through, hey, wh- what will our website look like? Wh- what kind of announcements will we make? How will we use social media? Wh- what will we put in a newspaper or, or in flyers that we send out? Wh- what will the first service look like so that in our worship, in the preaching, in our Harvest Kids, in the people greeting, that, that everything, that, that people would know who we are, what we're all about? And so here we come to John chapter 2, and this is really Jesus coming out. This is his inauguration. This is his his here I am for the world, and and it's his first public miracle. And what's he do as a way to announce who he is and his mission? He turns water to wine at a wedding that ran out of wine. I mean, if you you look at verse 11 of of John chapter 2, what's it say? It says this. It says, this was the first of his miraculous signs by which he was revealing his glory. So when you roll out something new, whether it's a business or, 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 or somebody's presenting a new movie they've got or, or even a new church, you want to make sure that everything you say about what you're rolling out is perfect. You want to be sure that, that that first thing you do is expresses so perfectly what you're all about. And so you look at Jesus coming to the world and you're like, why such a weird miracle? I mean, what's it mean that for Jesus' first miracle, he doesn't raise somebody from the dead, he doesn't bring sight to the blind, he doesn't preach a sermon, he doesn't do something so powerful and big. No, instead, he solves a catering problem. <laughs> he produces 150 gallons of the best wine to keep a party going. I, I grew up Baptist, I know, it was grape juice that he made, right? No, it was wine, right? He, he made wine. And it says this was his first sign, the, the first one. This is the thing that points to who Jesus is, what his mission is about. So we got to stop and not just blow past this as some sort of insignificant miracle. Like, like, like this is bigger than Jesus loves a good party. What does this miracle teach us about who Jesus is, what his mission was? important question we have to ask because this is his launching announcement. So if you've got the Bi- your Bible open to, to John chapter 2, let, let's read what it says. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana, Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Isn't it interesting that Mary sees this problem? She goes to Jesus. Now, now why would she go to Jesus with this problem? He hasn't done a miracle yet. And some would say, I mean, you haven't heard about Joseph in a while. The last time you hear about Joseph was when Jesus was about 12 years old at the temple. You don't hear much about him after that. And some would think that, that Joseph probably died. And so Jesus, as the eldest son, would have become the man of the house. And can you imagine having Jesus around whenever you've got problems? His, his perfect wisdom, right? So, so Mary had this trust that, that Jesus can take care of this. So she goes to him and says, can you do something about this? Look at verse four. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? 
Every man in the room's like, I think I found my life verse. <laughs> Honey, can you take out the trash? Woman, what's this got to do? No, that's probably not what's going on here. Right? We're, we're going to have to unpack that, right? He says, my hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now, now these pots, what they were, they were these, it says, ceremonial cleansing, right? They were used as this, this place where Jews would come in. Again, imagine what life was like in first century Israel where, where it's pretty dirty, pretty, pretty uh, filthy kind of way of life, and they, they don't have utensils there. That's not how they culturally eat. They would eat with their hands, and so you would come to a wedding. What would you do? You would wash up before you get into the wedding so that you could eat. The, these ones were ceremonial washing pots. Though, so they're used at the temple that before you go into the temple, you would say, I need to be clean before God. And that's what they'd use these for. He says, grab those and look at verse seven. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you've kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did it, Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum, with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Before I jump into the text, we, we need to kind of understand what's going on in this wedding. And we've got our ideas of weddings because we have our own cultural wedding traditions, but we have to understand what's going on here because their weddings were a lot different than ours. We can think they ran out of wine, big deal, like serve something else. Here's what's going on with a Jewish wedding. It would start with a, a betrothal. What that means is there's this promise to marry where a bridegroom would go to the father and the bride to promise, say, I want to marry this woman. And, and this betrothal, it's so much bigger than our engagements that we have. It was actually legally binding. So, so the young man enters into a covenant, a marriage covenant that begins as he asks for, for the father and his bride, say, I, I want you to be my bride. And he brings this covenant price for the bride, a bride price. These would be from his resources and it would express his love for her and it was a gift to the parents of the soon-to-be bride. As a dad with all daughters, I like this. We need to bring this back it was a significant amount of resources that he would bring. And, and the guy lays this gift out to the father. He would then pour a glass of wine and he would present the wine as this picture of a blood covenant he's proposing. And he would set the wine before his girl that he loved and she would either drink it or reject it. Right? This, is, this is way before the bachelor had the rose. Okay, like this is all going on. Like he said, will you, I've never seen it either. Would you um, accept me? And if she says yes and drinks the wine, he would then leave and he would go to his father's house to prepare a home, to prepare a room for them. And, and his would-be bride now waits for him to return. And before leaving to go to his father's house to build a new home, he would say, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'll return for you when it's ready. It could take up to a year 
for him to complete this home where him and his bride would live because he's not just throwing up a tent. He's putting work into this and, and only the father would be able to say, hey, it's ready, it's good, go get your bride. They comes for the wedding, the groom gets his friends, they, they go get the bride and this wedding feast would last for like seven days. All the cost of the marriage feast was the responsibility of the groom. Again, not a bad tradition. I like that. Everything on the groom's shoulders to to run out of wine would have been an absolute disaster in a culture that's a shame culture. To say you're not a good enough groom to provide for your bride? But, but more than just shame, which is bad enough, there's also a, a legal problem here because the bride's family could sue the groom now to say, you're not following through with the wedding covenant, the agreement you agreed to. And so when Mary says to Jesus, they've run out of wine, there is a groom dealing with immense shame and with legal trouble and no hope of providing for himself. He's already spent it all. He he doesn't have a visa to go and say, well, just put it on this and I'll pay for that later. He's done. He's out of resources. He has no hope to deal with this thing that causes great shame and legal trouble in his life. Now, somehow Mary finds out about it before it goes public, so she comes to Jesus. Now, here's what's amazing about that. Think think about this, that, that in the grand scheme of all heaven and earth, I think wine at a party may not be the most pressing issue for the savior of the world, right? But to Mary, it was important. I don't know whether they were family or just really good friends, but, but listen, your, your prayer requests to God are not insignificant to God. Why? Because you're not insignificant to God. The, whatever's going on in your life right now is important to him. And 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. So let me just say this, just as a side note, as we're going into this text, whatever it might be, no matter how big, no matter how small, listen, we bring our hearts, our stuff, our concerns, our cares, our anxieties, we bring them to Jesus. Mary brings this problem to Jesus. Now, now Jesus' response, it does seem pretty harsh, doesn't it? He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. You have to understand what's happening here. The, the phrase there, woman, it, it is translated more like ma'am. It is a, a, a statement that has honor to it. It's, it's not as harsh as we would say, woman, right? That's not what he's saying. And yet, and yet, it is harsh. There's something strong here. What's happening is Jesus here creating some distance between him and his mom. Jesus is Mary's son for sure. He is 100% God, 100% man, but, but he's also the son of God. So he might be the son of Mary, but he's also the son of God. He is the king of kings and he's co-eternal with the father. He's the creator and sustainer of the universe. So if, if you've been sent by God to fulfill this mission that you've had since the beginning of time to redeem the world and your mom's trying to get you off track of that mission, you rebuke your mom. Just to be clear, if, if right now you're in the middle of sending that text to your mom, to be, woman, to rebuke her, no, 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 who, who, who rebukes his mom? It's Jesus who does this, right? If, if you've been sent by God as a savior of the world and your mom's trying to get you off a track of that, you rebuke your mom, all right? You, you see Jesus do the same thing with Peter, right? When Peter says to Jesus, 
Hey, you don't have to suffer and die. Let's, we're not going to let that happen. What's he doing? Peter's trying to pull Jesus off the mission he knows he's on. So he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. There's something deep going on here in what Jesus is saying and doing that's more than just this wedding that's going off the rails. Now, what does Mary say? Jesus says, it's not my time. It's not my problem. This is not my hour. And yet, for some reason, Mary gets this impression that Jesus is still going to do something because she says, hey, to the servants, do whatever he asks. And I love that verse. I mean, talk about a clear and simple and powerful verse to put together a really good discipleship plan for yourself. Do whatever Jesus asks. I mean, what is it today that, that you know God's been calling you to? He's been pressing in on you. And, and Jesus saying, hey, I, I, I'm calling you to do this. I mean, maybe, maybe for you this morning is to follow Jesus for the first time. You've been coming to church for a while. You've heard about the gospel and the, the life-saving grace of Christ. And you know he's drawing your heart. And maybe, maybe today is the day you take that first step to say, I'm going to do what Jesus calls me to do. I'm going to surrender my life to him today. Maybe you are a Christ follower and you keep hearing us talk about baptism and, and, and you know that you're called to follow in that obedient step and yet you've been pulling back from it and, and yet Jesus is saying, listen, I want you to take that step. Is that what he's calling you to today? Maybe it's serving somewhere. You know God's gifted you and, and he's called you to serve with the gospel to our community in his church and, and you've been, you know he's calling you to. Maybe it's giving and, and you've been kind of holding on to your stuff and you know Jesus called you to give sacrificially. Maybe it's forgiving somebody. You've been holding on to bitterness and Jesus calling you to release that, to, to be the one who forgives. Maybe it's Jesus calling you to reach out to somebody. Maybe you're a student in school and you know there's that, that kid who's so alone and you see them every day and you feel that it's the Lord pulling you to say, you can be Jesus to that person. I know it's going to hurt your social status, but maybe you can be the one to come alongside and bring hope. Is, is Jesus calling you to that? Maybe it's leaving a sin behind. And you wake up every morning and, and you know, you, you feel the pressure, you, you feel the shame of not bringing it to Christ. And Jesus says, just give me that sin. Repent and be set free. And it's so interesting that, that the servants do what Mary says. They, they just follow Jesus. I mean, Jesus gives this crazy command where he, he fills up these basically sinks, right? He fills them up with water and he says, take that water to the master of the feast. The guy who's taking care of all of this wedding, take that to him. Grab a cup of that nasty hand-washing water and bring it to this guy for him to drink. And I, if I'm a servant, I'm like, is, is somebody around with like an iPhone filming this? Is Jesus trying to make a viral video here? Like what is going on? But they do it. They take a step of obedience, and here's the cool part. They take the step of obedience, and there's a miracle on the other side of it. It's so interesting that God rarely lays out his whole plan when he calls us to obedience. Isn't that true? I mean, do you see that in your life? Let's think about the Israelites. They're standing on the shore of the Jordan River, and, and it's this flooded river, this raging river river and, and God's saying, hey, I want you to step into that river over to the other side to the promised land that I have for you. And I go, you, wait, you mean step into this river here, this raging river? If we step into that, we're dead. And God's like, yeah, yeah, I want you to step into that river. 
No, wait, 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 God, you, you promised to make us a nation. If, it, if we do this, the nation's going to be wiped out. Yeah, step into the river. And it's not until Joshua puts his foot in the river Jordan that it parts, dries up, and they walk across. I mean, what do we see? We see this, that, that, that obedience that's rooted in faith is what brings the miracle. It's what, what brings us to the place that God has for us. It's where his power is unleashed. So what if, what if the miracle you're waiting for is on the other side of the step of faith, of obedience that Jesus is calling you to? And we see here, what is the actual miracle? What is Jesus actually providing for here? He does take care of their need, but, but, but he said to Mary that this has nothing to do with me. This is not my responsibility, and yet he provides this miracle. He creates this incredible party, this amazing feast. And I mean, you, you can look at this, and, and I mean, I see this. Jesus does come to say, hey, there's self-denial in following me. Jesus comes with, with rules, with, with guidelines, with guardrails to say, hey, this is the way of life when you follow after me. But, but here on this wedding day, we also see this, where Jesus says, I've come as the master of the party, of the feast. I come to bring joy. I mean, don't blow past this as we get to the meat of the text here, but Jesus is a guy who gets invited to weddings. I heard one commentator, I was reading, he said this, he says, Jesus was frequently in these social settings. Jesus, he says, Jesus was clearly not a recluse, a hermit, or an unnaturally religious person. I like that phrase, an unnaturally religious person. He was invited to meals and to parties. There was a joy about Jesus and more than that, he makes a point to say this, I've come to bring life and life to the fullest, that there's joy in his presence, that if, if Jesus is here, if Jesus is the Lord of your life, if he's the shepherd of this church, there's a reality of his presence that brings joy. I mean, true, life-giving, soul-sustaining, freedom-producing joy. Should that not be as people look from the outside in to the church of Jesus Christ, that they would say, man, that place is full of joy. There's life found in Jesus that we can't find anywhere else. Listen, people wanted to be around him. People far on the outside were drawn close to Jesus. And if Christ is in you, we aren't called to be unnaturally religious. If, if we abide in Christ, if we love Christ, if we treasure Christ, if we're growing in intimacy with Jesus Christ, we're gonna be transformed in such a way that there's a kindness in us, there's a joy in us, there's a life in us, there's a gratefulness in us that draws people to Jesus in us. Psalm 34 says this, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 16 says, in your presence, there's a fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In Ephesians 3, Paul is praying for us to have this. I want you to, to have power to grasp how long and wide and high and deep is the love of Christ. We are called to live a, a life full of joy in Christ. Why? Because we're people who have been transformed by Jesus. We're people who have found the new wine that he offers. Our world lives frustrated. Why? Because there's a craving, a world that's craving wine in, in, in a world that only offers water. People are craving the new wine in a world that only offers water. 
You go to the grocery store and you can find all kinds of water there, right? You go down the water aisle, there's all these different types of water, right? You, you, you've got smart water. I guess that's for intelligent people or maybe it's for dumb people to drink and we get smarter. I don't know, right? There's Perrier if you want to be super fancy, right? There's great value water for the rest of us. But here's the thing. It's all just water. It's tasteless. You're like, no, no, no. I, I drink bubbly. Yeah, which is like water that has a memory of a flavor you once knew, right? I heard somebody say it's bubbly is like, it's like it drove by a fruit truck one time one day, right? So, so I mean, as you think of that, as you think of drinking that, like that's the hope our world offers. It's, it's just this, this water, it's tasteless. And, and Jesus saying, I've come to bring something better than the water of this world for you. I'm offering you the wine of my grace. And we can try to cover the shame. We can try to gain hope and joy with the water the world offers, the water of striving, the water of religion, the water of success, the water of, of image, the water, sometimes the water of rebellion where we run away from God as far as we can get, thinking there's where I'm gonna find my hope. And Jesus says, stop striving. There's something new here. I've come to bring you this wedding joy, to, to bring you God's love, his transforming grace that brings lasting joy. That's what Jesus offers. He offers something where you can say, I know that God loves me and I can leave behind the shame. Where you can say, I know God has a sovereign care for me. That he's powerful and wise and I can leave behind the fear and the worry and the timidity and the anxiousness. Why? Because you have the wine of God's perfect providential care that overshadows all the other threats in your life. Now here's where we get to the important part of this text. How does Jesus provide this new wine of joy? Again, you go back to verse four and, and Jesus is clearly troubled by something because he says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What does it have to do with me? He, here's what he's saying. I'm not the groom at this wedding. This is not my responsibility. Now, I gotta imagine Jesus, like every other single guy or single gal at a wedding, what are you thinking? You, you go to a wedding as a single person and you're looking at the wedding and you're thinking about your future wedding. How often do you do that, right? You're thinking about when you're gonna get married, how your wedding's gonna be. And now we hear of Jesus and, and, and you're asking, wait a minute, does Jesus have a wedding he's looking forward to? Listen, all through the Old Testament, God tells us he doesn't want to just relate to us as kings to servants, not even just shepherd to sheep, not even as just father to children, but there's something much more intimate. He wants to have such a profoundly loving and close and intimate relation with us that he uses this image of marriage all through the Old Testament. The whole thing begins in Genesis with a marriage between Adam and Eve. And then you have Isaiah 62 and Hosea 2 and Jeremiah 2 where God calls himself the bridegroom of his people, his hopeful bride. Jesus then comes along and in Mark 2, people are getting after him because his disciples aren't fasting like, like the Pharisees' disciples. And Jesus says, why would they fast? He says, the friends of the bridegroom don't fast when the bridegroom's with them. Jesus now calls himself the bridegroom. And, and listen, this whole thing ends in Revelation 21 with a wedding. 
It says this in Revelation 21. It says, And I saw the holy city Jerusalem coming out of heaven prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a voice crying, Blessed are those invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. So here's Jesus sitting at a wedding thinking about his coming wedding. That great day in the future where his bride will finally walk the aisle, be joined with him. And so Jesus, looking forward to the wedding, he says, what does this have to do with me yet? I'm not the groom yet. And he adds, my hour has not yet come. What does that mean? If if you continue to read through the book of John, you see this phrase used a lot, my hour, the the hour of Christ. And, And every time Jesus talks about my hour, he's talking about his mission to the cross. He's talking about his death on our behalf to pay the cost of our sin, his perfect death and resurrection that conquers our sin and shame and death. His blood poured out as the perfect sacrifice. That's the hour Jesus is talking about. Remember at the Last Supper where he tells his disciples, hey, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Mary says they have no wine and Jesus says, it's not my time to die. He's thinking of that that wedding. He's saying, mom, the only way that I'm gonna be able to drink the wine uh, of wedding, feast, and joy, the only way I'm gonna lift up that cup of joy with my bride is by drinking the cup of wrath, of judgment. I'm gonna have to die. Why is that? Again, think of Jewish weddings and the tradition. Jesus has chosen his bride. There's this betrothal where Jesus comes declaring his love for his people. And what's he do? He pays the bride price to make her new. He pays for our sin, for everything we need to be made a pure, spotless bride. He pays for on the cross. Now can you see what's happening here? that we have these ceremonial jars, these, these things from the old law, the, this incomplete promise, this picture of you need to be clean to come to God. And Jesus says, I've come with something new. Through these next few chapters of John, you'll see this theme played out where, where here he says, I have new wine. Next week, we're gonna talk about where Jesus says, there's a new temple. The week after that, there's new birth. And Jesus deliberately chooses these jars that were used for ceremonial washing. A symbol of the fact that we are sinful. We we need to be cleansed if God's going to embrace us in love. And Jesus says, I have a new covenant now. A cleaning that isn't just this external cleaning thing that we've been doing, but through my blood, you will be fully clean. I mean, you notice Jesus doesn't say to the servants, hey, I've got some Clorox wipes. Why don't you go over there to those jars? You got to clean them right out really good. And then I got this filter, just attach this filter to it so the water's gonna, no, no, no. What he's offering is not, not a better brand of water. He's saying, no, no, I've got new wine. I've got something better than that. We're, we're not putting forward a better effort. We're not, we're not trying to use more energy to become more cleaned up on the outside. Jesus says, I'm paying the full price with my blood for you to be a pure and spotless bride. So he says to the servants, you go fill those up, fill them up to the brim. Because I've got something new that just fills to overflowing. That the old covenant's now been fulfilled in Christ. That he kept every law. He, he fulfilled every prophecy. He is the yes and amen of every promise of scripture. And he brings new wine by shedding his blood. That listen, it changes you from the inside out. 
Our betrothal, the the promise is the fulfilled and paid for payment on the cross. I love what it says in Zephaniah 3.15. It says this, be glad, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment and he takes great delight in you. He quiets us with his love and he rejoices over you with singing. That's the language of a groom to his bride. Look at verse 9. It says, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who drew the water, who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. What's he saying? You, you normally give the good stuff at first, right? And when people have drunk enough that they don't care, they don't notice any longer, then you bring out the boxed wine, Right? You start with a craft beer and you end with bush light. That's how you do a party. And and God's doing the opposite. He's saying, no, no, the best is yet to come. And, And look at the grace of these verses. Who did the master of the feast call to praise for what happened? Did he say, Jesus, I can't believe what you did. No, no, he brings the bridegroom, the guy who didn't deserve praise at all. The the one who had failed, the the one who deserved the shame, the one who who was legally on the hook for his offense. Listen, because of the cross of Christ, Jesus' righteousness becomes our righteousness. I mean, this is grace lived out here in these verses, amazing grace. To know that Jesus pays the full price. He rose from the grave to finish what he started. You know, after the resurrection, Jesus ascends to the Father and he says this. He says this to his disciples. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would, have, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. You've seen the wedding language here. That right now, Jesus is preparing a place for the bride, for the church, for you and me. And his father knows when it's time and it's going to be ready. And here we are in the waiting. And so what do we do? We prepare for that wedding day. How do we do that? We, we trust in Jesus' finished work on the cross that makes us pure and spotless without blemish. We trust that that was enough, that that the new wine of his death is our salvation and our joy. And so what do we do? We prepare ourselves for that wedding by trusting in, by living out of the truth of that gospel. Our lives are completely changed. We live differently. Back in Jewish time, a bride would wear a veil on her face when she went outside, one who was betrothed to say, hey, hey, my my groom is coming. I've taken. So we live in the same way where people say, what is it with you? You just gotta know something. I've been changed. Changed. I've been transformed. I live differently now. Why? Because I believe in the work of Christ. I believe that his provision was better than anything we could come up with on our own. It says in verse 11, this is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Jesus shows his glory in this miracle, a miracle that says, I'm pouring myself out for my bride, that there now is a new wine, a new complete promise, and the disciples believed. Here's my question for you this morning. Do you you believe today? Because here's the reality. You and I face the same problem of this groom. We don't have what we need to fulfill the responsibilities that we need to fulfill. 
Outside of Jesus, our sin separates us from God. We have no way of taking care of this need. The need for our shame to be covered, the need for our legal declaration of we are guilty, for that to be changed to you're set free. And listen, sin after sin is piling up, and one day that bill's gonna come due as we stand before a holy God. But Jesus, Jesus comes to say, I'll take away that shame. I'll take that debt. A new day's come. There's a new wine. Jesus says, I've come to bring celebration and joy and rejoicing because I've cleansed you. I've made you new. I'll wash away your stains. I give you my cleanliness and I'll take your filthiness. Listen, as the worship team comes up and we respond to such amazing truth, on the night of the Last Supper when Jesus said, Hey, I'm giving you a new wine. And he took that wine. He said, this is the new covenant. My, my blood poured out for you. He told his disciples, he says, the next time I drink out of this cup, the next time I drink will be with you in paradise. He's saying this. He's saying, for those who put their hope in Christ, that, that, that we'll be at the marriage supper of the lamb where we'll celebrate fully. And so listen, on behalf of Jesus, I want to extend that invitation to everybody here, to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Because here's the greatest news ever. Everybody's invited. No matter what you've done, no matter where you're from, no matter how you grew up, no matter what you struggle with, you're invited. Everyone's invited. Your, your invitation secured by the blood of the Lamb. So if you're saying, man, I, I hate my life right now, good, praise God, because there's a new life being offered to you. If you're like, man, I don't know if I can do this anymore, one of the best things for you to admit, in fact, the way you move into this grace is when you say, I have nothing to provide, that I see myself as that groom. I can't do this on my own. And th that's not death, it's death of your old self to bring new life, and you surrender. That's where new life is found. He's faithful. He'll keep his promises. He'll turn your water into wine. And listen, we all get into the wedding supper the same way by putting our hope in Jesus, by recognizing, yes, I need to be clean and I can't do it on my own. So I'm gonna rest in the truth that when Jesus says it is finished, that counted for me. Jesus replaces this ceremonial water with new wine, wine he makes. Jesus takes what's filthy. He doesn't make it better. He makes you into a new creation. As I'm not saying your life's gonna be easy, but, but when you, you begin to follow Jesus, that, that you have this invitation secured and there's this simple response where you say yes to him, where you admit, I, I'm these stone jars, I'm just nasty without Christ. You admit, I'm, I'm all messed up on the inside. I'm in need of a savior. I believe it. And I believe that when Christ died on the cross, it was for my sin. And he's inviting you. Would you come? Christians who are here, let me ask you this. Are, are you living in this truth? I mean, Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. And, or, 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 I'd say this. Do you recognize that you're empty enough so that you can be filled? Do, do you believe that, that God is at work today, that he's gently creating in you what you can't create for yourself. And even in the hard things, he's producing in you an eternal weight of glory that he's making you more and more like Jesus as he fills you with new wine. 
He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Jesus says, says know me, be, be with me. I'll, I'll transform you from the inside out, not the outside in. And this invitation, listen, it's extended to all of us today. Would you stand with me as we respond? Let me pray. Lord God, I just pray that, Father, we want to move from drinking the water of this world to drinking this new wine of grace. Lord Jesus, that we would see you as our ultimate hope, as our treasure. That because of your death on the cross and your resurrection, that we now have the opportunity not just to, to religiously clean ourselves up, but to be fully, completely transformed. Lord, what we're looking forward to, in your word, it says in Revelation 19, it says this. This is the truth of the future. I pray changes are today. It says this. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the, the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Father, we see the cross with this future in mind. We lift our voices to, to praise and worship the lamb who was slain, and we look forward to the groom coming for us, his bride. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.